All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. No adjective this morning because I don't know which direction we're going to go here. Ah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm leaving gonna, it open to possibilities. To, I'm going to have to get you, you energized. I mean, you know, we were talking before we started that, look, this is this is tough, tough week, tough month, tough year. Mm. Yeah, I, and it's it's draining. But and and so in in honor of uh, Goldman Gary and uh, Carlisle Jerry, I am wearing the red pants today because there is blood mm. running in the streets. But, and a little shout out to my friends at OnChain Monkey, uh, no blockchain, no Bitcoin socks today because they are the first uh, NFT program that's going to go full, full ten thousand on Bitcoin. So I think that's pretty cool um, in this ordinal thing. But uh, and I love the on-chain monkey guys. I mean, karma is a good thing. Um, which way to go? So let me, here, can I let me set the scene? Um, set the scene for the weekend, then I want to tee it up and kind of get your take. But you know, for those of you who haven't been paying a lot of attention to to crypto this week, there've been a a slew of sort of announcements. So in the beginnings of the week, we sort of got rumblings, right? That there were going to be uh, you know some some regulatory announcements. So Binance announced that they were suspending. U.S. dollar draw uh, withdrawals uh, starting on yeah February eighth, so that's already gone into effect. Uh, that's Binance International, not necessarily Binance U.S., but you know implying that they've lost their their banking partner and they're they're looking for another one. Um, there was also a probe that was announced, uh, the, an SEC probe that was announced in Kraken, which prompted Brian Armstrong, who is of course the CEO of Coinbase, say, "Hey, I'm hearing sort of these concerning rumors." about uh, a, a ban or, or making it more difficult for U.S. retail users to, to stake. That was confirmed yesterday when it was announced that uh, the SEC had settled their probe into Kraken. They paid a $30 million fine, and they are stopping their staking program for U.S.-based retail stakers. Still going on with the international. These are like vague, high-level numbers that I, I, I don't know these personally, but I think the vast majority of their business, probably like two-thirds to, to three-quarters are in the yep. U.S., so... Big deal for big deal for crack and stakers, um, and and it looks like uh, it looks like uh, the SEC isn't necessarily done. There was uh, a, you know an announcement uh, about Paxos uh, earlier this morning as well. So you know, Mark, uh, let me know what are you what are you thinking about all this? Look, um, you know, you could you could use the adjective, you know, downtrodden. I mean, just just beat. The beatdown just keeps coming, right? But but I'm I'm an optimistic guy. I'm a I'm a positive guy, so I'm, I'm not going to be downtrodden. But it would easy it would be easy to fall into that to that place. Look, this is, and I've been saying this for a long time on this show and and other places. Mm. This is a systematic attack, attack, and I mean that in in exactly as that word means yep. uh, on the crypto industry and. Everybody says, "Oh, but it's not. It's not against Bitcoin. No, this is this is against everything. So Bitcoiners don't want to be called crypto. It, it's all cryptographically secure technology. So it's all crypto. But um, look, this is this is a systematic attack by those people who who are in power. Now, why are they in power, and why do they have jurisdiction? <laughs> you know, particularly when you think about international companies, why does the SEC have jurisdiction over them? I mean, I." Good question, but look, extortion knows no bounds, and and I believe that's really what what we're seeing is a series of of extortionary 
movements, which are designed to foment distrust in the system, right? So they, they make out these, these people to be bad actors and therefore people distrust them. And then they, they accuse them, I believe wrongfully based on facts and law of violating laws or rules. But the SEC never made the rule they said they violated, right? They, they, they said that Bitcoin, Ethereum are not securities. Then they say they, if you pay yield on those securities, you're violating securities law. Well, how? You said they weren't securities. So it, it's a very interesting tale. And, and look, you go back to my birthday last year, right? Luna Day, um, where uh, the next day, right? Less than 12 hours after the whole thing went down, Janet Yellen is saying, we need regulation of stable coins. And I just happen to have this, you know, 800 page bill that would, would fix this. I'm like, oh, you just whip that up over the last, you know, 12 hours. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> so, uh, and then after the last thing with FTX, you had the the Warren bill. I'm like, oh, you just, just whipped that up in the last week? Really? No. So okay. I think this is systematic. I think it's a big plan to uh you know achieve what they are achieving which is you know people in the industry feeling badly yeah feeling beat down feeling like wait a second i i thought this was supposed to be this evolution of technology and this innovation cycle and and entrepreneurship and and go america and i mean that's what i that's why i got into this Mm mm-hmm so I, uh, I, have, I have a couple of responses to that, which is one, I think that beat, that beat down, uh, downtrodden feeling. I have, a, I have a good friend of mine who has gotten into crypto you know, pretty deeply this last cycle. And I remember having a conversation with him about a year ago. It was like, you know, there will be another shoe to drop. I mean, just, you know, kind of wait until what it feels like in the, in the, in the depths of the bear market. And I, I called him yesterday and I was like, Remember I told you that uh, you know they will feel it. I was like, this is about as bleak as as I can remember it feeling uh, during the last bear market, which probably means, by the way, that it's darkest just before the dawn. It's probably about. I, and look, I am wearing the short sleeves. Spring yeah. has sprung in North Carolina. It's it's going to be close to seventy degrees today, and it's like sixty in New York too. Actually, yeah, it's I, pretty I look, nice here. You know, actually, I was I was in your town for a couple hours yesterday. I spoke to a, a family office group. And uh, thanks for so. the shout out, Mark. Uh, look, I, I, I literally I was in I went to Miami uh, on Wednesday for a dinner through this thing called Collective Experiences. It's it's really mm-hmm. cool thing. It's a it's like a investment club, and you know this group gets together and they go fun places and uh, they invite investment people to come talk to the group. And so I I went down had dinner with these guys. Uh, we did a little boat cruise and it was fun. Oh, so, I saw that. Was Mike Green? Yeah, 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 yeah with Mike Green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so Mike yeah. Green. So Mike yeah. Green, right? Whoever thinks you and Mike hate each other, I'm like we don't hate each other. We are friends. We've been friends for thirty years, mm-hmm. and yes, we differ a lot on yeah. on things. But if two people always have the same opinion, one is unnecessary. And and the thing about really, really smart people, and Mike is a really, really smart person. Um, it's awesome to have people who are really, really smart that you can have a dialogue and debate. And there's no animosity. There's no. Mm-hmm. There's no canceling. There's no. There's no negativity. It's all anyway. So we had a blast. And 
So then uh, just yesterday morning, I flew up to New York. I went, I did my speech, and then I was back to the airport. I mean, I literally was in town for like five hours. But uh, it was cool. You know, I gave, I gave a, a talk on the future of investing to a bunch mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, investment professionals of all different walks. And I basically laid out the case for why uh, all of our jobs are as RIAs, as registered investment advisors and wealth managers and, and all of that is, is eventually going to be displaced by tokenization and algorithmic portfolio management. Now, not tomorrow, but you know, it, it is far superior, far superior to have a portfolio that runs 24-7, 365 that constantly rebalances, that constantly gets you fractional ownership of the best asset classes like collectible Porsches and fine wine and real estate and private equity and venture capital, things that most investors aren't even allowed to have in their 401k. And Which is nuts. Which is it's crazy. nuts. No, it's, it's crazy. And <laughs> I, I use the analogy because it's, it's, it, it works, of you know, Top Gun Maverick, best movie ever in the history of mm-hmm. movies. Yeah, I used to think Top Gun was, but there's the scene, the drone ranger, right? Saying, Maverick, you know, your, your days are, are over, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't need pilots that need to eat, sleep, take a piss. You know, it, it's all going to be drones. Yeah. And yeah, got it. You know, flying, bombing missions, definitely drones are better. But, and, and in, as a financial advisor, you think about it, well, why do I need someone who needs to eat and sleep and... Uh, you know, make make decisions that might be emotional or or impaired. I, I just want rational, logical. And and it's funny. I was talking to Mike about this, and and he said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. But here's the problem: as good an idea as that is, if that were actually happened, then so much money would flood into venture capital because that would be the highest and best use case that the returns would go down." And like, yeah, that's why it's a wall garden, right? That's why, you know, the SEC in their infinite wisdom says, oh, if you're not rich, you can't invest in this, which are your protection. No, it's not. It's for their protection. It's for the rich people's protection. You know, all yeah. walled gardens, all walled, you know, gated communities are not for the poor people's protection. Mm. It's for the rich people's protection. So I've got I've got to actually do a, sh- a bit of a shout out here actually to one of our sponsors, Public. So they actually they have they're they're a very interesting platform in that like you can do everything that you would do with a traditional brokerage like uh you know individual stocks ETFs. You've got crypto on one spot. But they've also got alternatives in one space. So like some of those not all those asset classes, but some of those asset classes they give you access to. They actually just launched Treasury accounts too, so nice. you can get access to. Uh, which by the way, I I honestly I can. I should have done this at some point in my life, but I've never tried to invest in U.S. Treasuries before. But now, like, they just make it super, super easy, do all in one place. Yeah. So go check them out. You just reminded me of them. Um, I, I want to uh, zoom back in, though, on on the crypto stuff that we were talking about. I, I also yeah. want to correct myself. The Paxos investigation was uh, the New York Department of uh, right. Financial yeah, Services. Department That's of Justice, not SEC. Yeah. 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 So, yes. uh, so Yet. Different. Yet. <laughs> right, right, Yet. right. But uh, I, I think it, it, it brings up a couple, a couple interesting points. So staking in general, right? So there was there was a great thread on Twitter. I'm sure a lot of people have maybe seen at this point if you're concerned about this or been digging into it. But a lot of the devil is in the details. And a lot of what uh, Kraken got in trouble for is some of the technical details of how they actually implemented their staking 
program. So the reason the SEC has indicated that staking looks like, you know, could potentially be a securities offering is if you think about the dynamics of a bond, right? It's like, I give you money, you give me interest in return, and then you return my principal. Staking looks a little bit something like that, right? I have my ether, right? I stake it, I get some rewards that are paid from the network, and then eventually I get to withdraw my ether. Looks very similar. It's it's a huge difference though, in that you're not taking necessarily you know individual counterparty risk, and I don't think that the Howie you know the Howie test applies to to this new technology. It's not an orange grove, but not it's not grove. an orange grove. But there were some there were some differences just in terms of how Kraken implemented their staking program, and like uh, for instance, like consistency in payments. Right in staking, it, it's not a, necessarily a consistent thing. Like hey, every other day, like a payment gets spit out. Kraken was kind of abstracting that, right? They were saying, hey, like we understand roughly, you know, systematically when we're supposed to get payments from the stake from the network, we're going to smooth that out to make it a better customer experience. SEC kind of looks at that and says, hey, guys, like that, you see what I'm saying? Like they kind of made these these differences in terms of how the program is actually implemented. And then there's a specific way of, um, you know, kind of mixing, again, I, I'm not an expert. It's, yeah, I'm it's going a rationalization, and and yeah. Michael, and, and again, it's 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 great insight on on how they found a way around the facts. Right, the facts are that this is not a security like a stock or a bond. It, it's just not. It doesn't meet the Howey test. But to your point, if if you Stand on one leg and squint really hard and look at how they algorithmically smooth things to make it easier for the customer. And again, (laughs) you're supposed to, in this world, as a financial services provider, make things easy for, better for your customers. That's the Mm -hmm. whole point. And the job, as I understood it, of the SEC was to protect those customers and make sure that financial services did that instead of skimming off the cream or giving them the worst stuff or so the fact that they created a better model is not a negative but because it gave them a back door into saying oh you broke the rule but but there was no rule oh well we're telling you the rule now and that's the problem I have with all of this, right? Whether it's BlockFi, whether it's Gemini, whether it's these guys, to come in after the fact and say, you broke this rule. Well, well there was no rule. Well, well, we're telling you the rule now. And so in the past, you broke it. Existentially, that's just, just crazy. Um, and And here's the thing. The other thing is a positive, engaging regulator Mm -hmm. would take a different approach. They would say, you know, we we want to be partners. So help me understand what you're trying to do. Okay. You're trying to do that. Okay. Well, these things get a little too close to the third rail. So how about you try this? And there would have been a period of adjustment and, and there would have been a, a grace period to get in compliance with said adjustments before there was this, no, 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 that's not, and, and this is what Hester Pierce is railing about. Every single time this happens, she abstains or dissents, dissents, actually, it doesn't abstain, she dissents. Why? And then she writes about it. And it's because you're not supposed to 
use enforcement to regulate. You're supposed to regulate and work with your partners to make sure they follow the regulations. Mm. And that's how it's supposed to work. What's going on, guys? Want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Curve. They are the one-stop shop credit cards that helps you take control of your personal finances. Here's the reason that I personally love this company. These guys are all about helping you manage and maximize your personal cash flow. We have been talking for the last couple of months about everything that the Fed is doing with raising interest rates. Obviously, this is not, no one's got a crystal ball. This is not financial advice, but I think it makes sense more than ever now for companies to be managing their cash flow and for you as an individual to be managing your personal cash flow as well. Curve makes it super, super easy to do that. Even I can do it as a technological Philistine. They aggregate all of your spending information in one place. They make it super easy to plan. But they actually go one step further than that. They have a very cool feature called Go Back in Time, which allows you to switch payments from one card to another. So if you have an unexpected expense crop up, boom, you can move that over to your credit card, free up some cash. Or maybe you learned too late that you could have earned more rewards by spending on a different card. Boom, Curve has you covered there too. And the last thing that I'll say is, if you click the link at the bottom of this episode, you'll get $20 in Curve cash, but you'll only get that if you click the vanity link at the bottom of this episode. Plus, that gives me the credit as well. So thank you, Curve. I appreciate you caring about cash flow. Guys, click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. Um, I, I hear you on that. I, I the the point that I was trying to make about about Kraken is I think it's it okay. The way their staking program work, the the question I think the SEC from a legal perspective is very interested in answering is do the yields come from the protocol or do the yields come from actions that Kraken takes? And I think the way that they're like, if we're going about this from a legal interpretation, a lot of the question ends up being like, you know, where is the yield necessarily coming yeah. from? Yeah. Now, the, the reason why this is relevant, right, is because there are other staking providers here in the US that could be impacted, right? Most notably yep. Coinbase. So Coinbase yep. has their their sort of vanilla bread and butter staking program. They also have CB ETH, uh, which is a liquid staking product. And the uh, so the, the devil's going to be kind of in the details there. And I think we're going to see a lot, both in terms of how these programs are set up and implemented, but also like what the ultimate aim is here of the regulatory apparatus. Now, yeah. Coinbase is very different from Kraken in that just the size of the balance sheet, which, as we know, plays an enormous amount of, uh, you know, a, a big part in these investigations. So there's a great tweet from Jesse Powell, who's understandably upset about this. If I were in Jesse's position, I'd be super <laughs> upset about it, too. But, yeah. uh, you know, he's kind of in good faith, I think, answering answering some specific questions about Twitter. And, you know, he had this tweet about, well, they kind of waited until, you know, like we're compliant, right? They have access to our financials. They waited until, you know, we did a big layoff and it's a bear market and our volumes got hit and we can't really defend ourselves here against an existentially large fine. Exactly. Which is strategic, but like this is everyone doing their job. But there is the the interesting thing is Coinbase. So Coinbase is very different from Kraken in that they have I I don't have access to Kraken's financials, but you know Coinbase has about five billion dollars of cash. Last time yeah. I checked on their yeah, balance yeah. sheet, yep. they have it's about eleven percent of their revenue that comes from I think it's subscriptions and services is the exact line item, which is basically ETH staking. The reason yep. why this is of existential importance to Coinbase and why they might be more willing to fight it is because investors in general don't love that the vast majority of Coinbase's revenue comes from their transactions, right? They 
just like in traditional markets where brokerage fees essentially went down to zero, there's a race to the bottom. They see that happening for crypto brokerages and exchanges as well. Mm -hmm. So that services mm -hmm. and subscription portion has been signaled to Wall Street as something that's extremely important. They need to protect that 11%. Yep. So I think they'll go to the mat on this. Um, oh, and no, and Brian said he was. I mean, and, yeah. and, and I think he has every right to. And and to your point, based on, on the current definition, now that – that doesn't mean they won't change the rules again. And and that is and look, I I don't want to antagonize the SEC. No. I mean, we we just had our exam I don't either. And we we com we complied and, and we helped them and, and we helped educate them and 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 I, I like the team that, you know, they're nice people. Um so I, I don't want to antagonize them, but I, I really disagree with the chairman on on a number of the things they they have have ruled recently, and yeah, I'm entitled to disagree. I, I'm not going to say bad things about him because that'd be stupid. But uh, I, can, I can disagree with him. Um, I, I do. I do believe right, and 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 you know, you and I may even disagree on this, but I do believe this is part of a bigger, more sinister plot to, you know, try to weaken the the growth. Uh, and the adoption and and I've talked about this it's my hashtag right then they fight you uh, we are in the then they fight you phase and unfortunately it's not going to be short I mean it's going to be years and that is the history of big disruptive innovations you have to fight for the internet had to fight the telcos for years I mean it was brutal and that depths of depression feeling, I remember, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy when I think about it, given how, how wonderful the outcome was. But you know, when we invested in Yahoo and eBay and, and Google and, and all these things, and, and you know, the, the telcos were trying to get this law passed and, and you know, Krugman was out saying it's never going to be more important than fax machine. Everybody's like, the internet's over. And, and then Amazon went down and, and, and you're just, you're just, you're in 2001 and you're just like, Oh my God, <laughs> I just spent all this time and this. And, and then we made hundreds of times our money, not, mm. not hundreds of percent, but hundreds of times our original investment in these companies. Not all of them. We had ones that went to zero and, and that's the way it works in venture capital. But Holy moly. I, I remember, I don't remember the exact day, but I, I most of 2001 was not fun. It just was not fun. And it was hit after hit after hit. And that, you know, the, eventually, you know, the telcos lost. And today we live in a Web 2 world. And, and now as we transition to Web 3, the same incumbents don't want to lose uh, I shouldn't say the same. It's it's a different set of incumbents because now it's yeah. financial services. And financial services, they're even more connected than tech. No, nah, it's not 100% true. I mean, Verizon, AT&T, those guys, they are very powerful. They spend lots of money in DC. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars in lobbying. You know, my favorite story on that, you know, we invested with this guy, Phil Falcone, very famous hedge fund manager. And he had this amazing uh, competitive network. It was new technology to create uh, another cellular uh, provider. 
and things were going great. And, and, uh, <laughs> uh, the government came in and said, you know, um, we need to take this upper right hand corner of your, think about it as a, a rectangle, like the screen. It's the upper right hand corner of the screen. We're just going to take that through eminent domain and we're going to use it for our GPS tracking satellite stuff. And I'm like, why, why us? I mean, well, because your spectrum is exactly the right, what we need. We're, we're just going to take it. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, it's like 3%. Okay. Well, then. Um, a couple of years later, they're getting ready to announce the launch of, of their network. And just coincidentally, Mike, I mean, just coincidentally, that year, Verizon was number one, AT&T was number two, the two largest lobbyers, over $500 million between the two of them. Magically, just before launch, I mean, three weeks before launch, the government can ask, ah, you know, your network is interfering with our satellite positioning system. So you got to shut it down. <laughs> what? That was our spectrum. We paid for it. We built it. Did they, did they remunerate? Did they compensate for you for that? No. Out of business. Bankrupt. Gone. Done. So not every, not the good, the good guys don't win every time. The good guys do not win every time, but I'm not worried about that with, with crypto. I'm I'm not, because this tech is so superior, like, you know, another uh, cellular network. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Two is not as good as three or four or five for competitive reasons. And, you know, duopolies are bad for customers. <laughs> Again, if the government was trying to protect customers, they would encourage competition. Not discourage competition. We would not right. have monopolies. We would not have duopolies. We, you know, there would not be three major airlines. There would not be two major car rental companies. There, you know, that is money talks, baby. And duopolies and monopolies pay large lobbying costs. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I, uh, you know, the again on on the crypto front i think like one more negative and then i want to get to a silver linings kind of positive here is you know where i will defend the regulatory point of view i think is there's a big question still around like binance and honestly like i like look as far as like solvency and their you know in terms of how they've executed their business it's been great i can also it's just not a hard stretch for me to put myself in the shoes of a regulator and say look this business you know this entire industry like I don't know off the top of my head, but it's probably 70% of exchange volumes or something crazy like that is, is Binance. And it's this weird offshore entity that frankly, like I've never had any reason to suspect that they're doing anything under board, but like the way they communicate even on Twitter is even as me as a, as a deep believer in this space, I'm like, guys, come on, this just doesn't, <laughs> this just seems weird. And, and that's, I mean, Paxos is, you know, Paxos is connected to Binance. Like basically everyone in this industry has ties with them. So I can put myself in the shoes of a regulator and see being uncomfortable with that. On on the other hand, they I want to get to the, the positives of this or like how I think this could be good. Basically, the US is doing everything they can to make it more difficult, regulate value away from the CFI part of the space. Yeah. And what it's what it's what it's forcing. What it's forcing the industry to do is, is um, you know, during this last bull market, you know, when, when there was run, like everyone 
basically felt the gravitational pull of CFI and centralization because it's easier. Mm-hmm. You can move faster. You can harness yeah. resources. Our entire everything from like how we how we create capital to how we organize companies that that's all a CFI type world. But now I think what you might actually see is a small advantage handed to truly decentralized operators. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be one of those people who's like this is a great thing. This is this was not a good week. Yeah. This was a this was a setback. But I do think overall, inadvertently perhaps the U, the U.S. regulatory apparatus is pushing us towards the future that I think we all want in this space. And maybe that maybe the future of the relationship between of, of exchanges is there's some kind of like thin app layer on a you know a, a fatter kind of decentralized protocol layer underneath, and maybe yeah. they get a little less margin, and maybe they're not as valuable as businesses. Maybe the maybe the apparatus. I, I mean. What no one is really saying out loud here is there, there is a future where the incumbent financial system is the the fr- the front facing way that you interact with decentralized protocols. That's a, that's a real possibility. But I, I actually there there is a future mm. when I close my eyes ten years from now where most of the financial functioning happens right the back end of the financial transactions, which is important. You know, comes from this decentralized uh, sort of infrastructure that we've been building. So, no, look, uh, uh, yes, 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 and yes, right, one hundred percent, and and that is ultimately where we were always headed. Yep, it's just how quickly, right. and and because here's the thing: it, it, it's like, um, it's like population, right? You can't make people old faster. Like when you have a lot of 25 year olds in an economy, you can't make them 45 suddenly and more productive and, and, you know, great business owners and big spenders. Mm. 25 year olds are, they're not very experienced. They just haven't been around a long time and they're still learning their, their roles and they don't have a lot of money. I mean, some do, but, but, but bottom line is as a group, you know, and that's why you have inflation in those economies. You look at any economy with lots of young people has high inflation because that's borrowing from your customers in terms of higher cost to train your workers. So you can't make people older. Even if you import people, if you have immigration, the average immigrant's like 33. So that's closer to 45, but it's still not there. And, you know, the same thing's true here is, is you can't, you can't make all of the millennials and Gen Z's and Gen Y's, Gen Z's, and now Gen A's. You know, I, I saw a great line. That maybe, maybe you even tweeted this out. But a Gen A is never going to have a leather wallet. Yeah, I saw this too. To carry credit cards and and money, they're they're never going to have one of those. Right? That's kind of interesting. They're going to have a digital wallet from the first time they, you know, need. Assets. They're going to have a digital wallet, not a leather wallet. And that's an interesting, but we can't make those people be in charge tomorrow, right? It's going to be 20 plus years. And so what we thought, I think collectively we all thought was, well, TradFi was definitely going to be disrupted the same way media and commerce were disrupted by the internet. But CFI was this bridge to DeFi, this truly decentralized and, and I agree with you that, that this uh, response by the U.S. regulatory apparatus uh, will accelerate that move. It'll also do another thing, which they don't really want. And if they thought it through, 
they they wouldn't have done it, but they didn't think it through. Law of unintended consequences is it will push people and assets outside. It will. US that was the other thing it I was going to say. It absolutely yeah. will. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, why? And, being an entrepreneur is hard enough. I can't imagine being an entrepreneur building one of these protocols with the threat of not only your, you know, your personal identity and your financial situation crumbling, you know, at, at any given day, you could also go to jail or face an inquest from the SEC. I, I, I'm shocked that anybody does it, to be honest. The programmer, right? The programmer for Tornado, Tornado Cash. Cash is still in jail. SBF is sitting in his parents' house, sending text messages, blowing my mind. And that guy's in jail because he wrote code. Okay, so 100%, if you are building something that threatens the status quo, and suddenly that status quo is going to fight back and start jailing people, you're moving. You. It's, yeah. it's like when China said, exchanges, no mas. What they'll do? Screw you, China. No, because China jails are probably even worse than American jails. So what they do? They move to Japan and Korea and West Texas. And I mean, now the, the countries that embrace the future are going to win. But here's the other thing. And, and this, is, this is the part that's hard. This is really hard to wrap your head around. And this is my, my point of my talk yesterday is the ultimate end point is a nation stateless state. Because the metaverse, right, broadly speaking, and digital commerce and crypto doesn't need nation states. In fact, it defies nation states. Yeah. And therefore, there is a world that will exist. It doesn't mean the nation states will go away. It's not like America will go away, but I asked, I asked the, the simple question. Does anyone know why uh, different countries have the borders that they have? Right? Like, why does Ethiopia look like Ethiopia? And why does, you know, Canada look like Canada? Because a bunch of old white guys sat in rooms and drew lines on maps. Literally. Right? And so we have bloodshed because families were divided and religions were moved. I mean, and think about it. There are, 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 have you ever seen a straight line out in nature? No, there are not straight lines out in nature. And yes, there are borders that follow rivers and stuff like that. But the bottom line is those were decisions made by people who weren't on the front lines, right? They were back away with power and wealth and, and decision-making authority. But at the end of the day, those decisions have created, you know, centuries of uh, inculcation around this idea that nation states. And I, I, this is a true story. So I got on a plane to go down to one of these other events a couple months ago down in Cayman, and I had changed my my backpack. I got a new backpack, and I had forgotten to put my passport in. So I got on the plane here, didn't need my passport. Got to Charlotte, go to get on the plane, and they're like. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, hold on. Okay, I don't, I don't have my physical passport. I got it. But you've scanned my passport a hundred times. 
you can take the picture of my face right now with all the facial recognition that's going on, and you can pull up exactly who I am. I'm standing here in front of you. No way you should not be able to verify my identity and let me go to Cayman, which is not even really a foreign country, like, like a mm. protector of the United States. I mean, it is a foreign country, I know. But no way. They weren't going to let me do it because of this silly, antiquated – the fact that we have to carry around a paper passport? Ridiculous. Mm. Absolutely ridiculous. So – but that is – that's the rule we have. But that, those rules are going away. Yeah. Not tomorrow, but, but in the future. And yeah. – I, I don't know what, what you call that, that stateless state, but it's coming. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. I want to I want to do a quick check in on macro actually because I, I want to actually also issue a a bit of a correction because I, I've sort of changed my mind on something and I, I'm frankly a little again I'm not 100 percent sure how to think about this so I'm actually going to rely on on your opinion here uh, for for a minute so you know we were sort of talking about this uh, you know the amount of I'm stress start calling you the- Lord Keynes. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, I, well, I you, you know, know the I, story right right I mean Lord Keynes, hmm. he gave a speech and he gave a speech a week later and guy in the front row said, Lord Keynes, last week you said the exact opposite. He's like, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? What do you do? I mean, it's a great what do you do? I mean, yeah, what do you- it's just like, come on. I, I'm with you on that too, in that I've always, you know, sort of raised my eyebrows a little bit when people accuse politicians of being a flip-flopper. You know, you know, people are, who's the, it's like Ron Paul who hasn't changed his mind since the 1970s. Like, Change your mind since the seventies, my man. <laughs> like uh, it's been a long time since the seventies, brother. Some uh, things have changed. Yeah, yeah. Changed. But the the point I was trying to make is so in terms of credit card debt, so sort of rising credit card debt and and slowing incomes. It, you know, it's it's been pointed out, and I think it's I think it's uh, it's it's worth saying that you you should be comparing the the credit card debt uh, to what right and what you're mm-hmm. looking at at the the chart over on the right here is the. Um, percent of credit card debt uh, or credit card debt as a percentage of disposable income, which is, you know, it's not as low as it, as it ever was, but it's still at sort of historic lows, at least going back to the early aughts. Right. And then yep. in terms of there's a Goldman Sachs prediction uh, sort of chart here over on over on the left, but they're actually prediction that um, real disposable income is is going to go up this year. So overall, you know, we were kind of talking about this tapping out of the consumer I, I just want to correct, uh, you know, at least at the, at the time of this recording, it doesn't necessarily look like the, you know, the consumer is in a whole lot of trouble. So um, it's it's kind of one more data point, at least from my vantage point in the the soft landing camp. But I suppose we, uh, I suppose we'll see. Yeah, look, I, I think I, I do think that is the the new narrative um, mm-hmm. that that that. You know, wages are still rising, and 
and you know that the incomes are going to be okay. The retail sales data isn't corroborating that. Mm-hmm. Uh, December actually was the worst month in I don't know two decades, something like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm with you that, that these two charts definitely make the case that it's not as dire as some, including myself, would have said based on the just massive increase in credit card balances and delinquencies. I mean, massive. Now that's a base effect because you can see that that giant drop after the stimmies. And there's still money from those stimmy checks. The thing is, I think that's a bad number because that's all in rich people's bank accounts. It's not in the average person's bank account. I think they spent it. They either retired some debt or they bought some stuff. They went to a movie, you know, ate out. Uh, I notice it. um, Airports, not quite as busy. Um, Last couple of days, you know, restaurants, not quite as busy. No, not, not disaster, not, not empty. Um, but we're in a restaurant for this dinner down in Miami and there were three parties in the whole restaurant. And that was not, now it was a Thursday. It wasn't, no, it was a Wednesday. So it wasn't like a Friday or a Saturday, but three groups. And that's not a lot. Mm. Well, you know, to corroborate that point of view, I, I, I just sort of continued to be there. There are such conflicting signs and signals on this. Like if you look at the yield curve, which is again, oh. <laughs> kind of like the famous, like correlation doesn't equal causation, but you know, it continues, just continues to get more and more inverted. And, you know, the, at least that, I think this is the twos and tens that we're looking at, but the, the tens and threes is inverted as well, which is but this, that- this inversion is as bad as uh, 1981. Mm. And remember, 1981, again, you won't remember, but I'll remember since I was graduating from, from high school that year. Mm. Uh, 1981 was uh, the first of a back-to-back uh, recession, 81 and 83. And the one in 83 was a booger, right? That was the one where, uh, it's a technical term, booger, um, that where, you know, the famous sign in Seattle, the last one to leave, please turn out the lights. And that warehouser laid off everybody, Boeing laid off everybody. I mean, and so what's what's really interesting, um, part of the my, again, my, my, my talk yesterday, it's interesting. Um, I talked about how the evolution of what the right way to invest has been. And it's it's based on the human behaviors of buying what you wish you would have bought and selling what you're about to need. So in the 50s and 60s, uh, basically, you were not a good fiduciary if you owned equities, right? Because we had had the crash and people were Depression-era babies and we had the war. And so bonds, it was all bonds. You had to, you had to be bonds, you know, no debt. And, and then we actually had this uh, after the mainframe was created in 1954, we had a four-year period leading up to 58, where there was a 58 was a massive bull market and 58 to 68 was this huge bull market and everybody missed it. Everybody missed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nifty 50 happened in 68 and we had this blow off peak and what they do, 
Now, it took five years, but five years later, they got some legislation passed called ERISA that basically said, no, pension funds need to be more diversified. They need to have stocks and they need to have other things. And from 68 to 82, 68 to 82, the market was dead flat. Dead flat. So people bought what they wish they would have bought in 68. And then you had this bear market from 68 to 82, including a really bad crash right when ERISA uh, was released in 73, 74. And so interestingly, in 1979, it's funny because I didn't realize this until a couple of days ago, that Barry Ritholtz actually wrote the story. I've talked about this story for years called The Death of Equities, hmm. written in August of 1979. And it basically said that no self-respecting fiduciary should ever own equities again because, see, we've had 10 years of no returns. Well, of course, from that point, and it was actually two years later, right when that you know, left-hand side of this chart in 81, from 81 to 2000 was the best period in stocks other than 1920s. And S&P, from the date, from the date of that article, and I'm not, I'm not dissing on Barry. He was a young reporter doing his job. I'm, I'm dissing on the cover curse, right? When it's on the cover of a magazine, and this was the paper airplane crashing and you know equities were dead, uh, from that date to uh, March of 2000, stocks compounded 13.3%. NASDAQ compounded 18.5%. So it was a pretty good time to own stocks. So equities were not dead. Yeah. And what's crazy in 2000, so nobody owned equities in 82, but everybody wanted to own equities in 2000. And the cover of all the, the, the magazines was this is a boom and it'll never end and you got to get in and you know there's the famous one of the guy who's his hair was on fire and he's like oh my friends are getting rich and i'm not and so everybody piled in right at the top when warren buffett said these valuations are stupid like that was his word in his annual report and then we had the crash so here we are again at a point where the yield curve is telling us that economic activity is slowing and, and you see it in, in all the numbers, the PMIs, the industrial production, the lead, leading economic indicators, holy moly. The New York uh, survey, uh, future orders like 38. 38 is like depression level, like forget mm. recession level, it's depression level. So all these indicators are saying it's bad and yet people are like, no, 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 no. no. Meme stocks. I want to own meme stocks. I want to own Bed Bath Beyond. I want. <laughs> Wait, Mark. What I mean, about uh, what about uh, Google's hundred billion dollar mistake? Did you see that this week? Oh, hundred and fifty billion. Here's the crazy <laughs> thing. Bard made a mistake, which someone said actually it wasn't a mistake. But okay, whether it was a mistake or not, they lost one hundred fifty billion dollars in in market cap in two days. Chat GPT, which is really cool. Is only worth thirty billion. I know. So one mistake, which might have not been a mistake, and I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna I'll make a prediction. Google's AI capabilities are good. I'm gonna make that prediction. I'm gonna go way good. out on a limb. It's a good prediction yeah? to make. Yeah. I mean, I'm here's a company. That. Here, no, here's a company that in 2005 bought Android. And now has 80% market share. Oh, I just learned, actually, I just learned this yesterday. 
um, from this really cool guy. Uh, his wife is a cypherpunk, and he he's now in in digital. Uh, MIT scientist. Uh, he actually told me an amazing story about SPF, which I will share. Um, more corroboration to my point that he is the master of nothing. Um, but uh, this guy was saying, "Oh wait, I just lost my train. I thought where was I going?" Um, we were talking about, but I, I want to give, by the way, for those of you who weren't following along with this whole Bard saga, Bard is Google's response to chat GBT. So they debuted their AI. They had a commercial about Bard and what Bard could do. It looks very similar to, you know, to chat GBT. They, they didn't catch it. There was a mistake uh, in, in Bard. Maybe I just, I didn't know that it was maybe not a mistake, but whatever. No, people no, no, interpreted no. It as a mistake. It took three days. People say it was a mistake or other people say it was a mistake, but the market cap of Google went down $150 billion dollars yeah. on yeah. that mistake yeah and all of chat gpt <laughs> is only worth 30 billion but here's the crazy part this is mm. crazy 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 gpt stands for uh generative um pre pre something transformer mm-hmm. pre not predetermined pre uh, whatever it is but the word transformer Guess who built the transformer that Chat GPT is built on? Google. Mm. One of the biggest mistakes they've ever made, this guy was saying, is look, they thought that this was either competitive or something with their their business. So they said, you know, we're just gonna put it out there in open source. And I guess OpenAI came along and said, oh, ooh, this is interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll take that. Yeah. And yeah. they then built around it. But it's, as I understand, it, and again, this this guy knows. I, I don't know. This guy knows. I mean, he was part of part of it. Uh, he said it, it, it was the biggest mistake Google has ever made. Um, yeah. So they're not perfect. Yeah. It's uh it's it's fine. And and then just to just to end here on yeah, you know, even the the terminal rate, which is this is the market's expectation of where they think the Fed is is going to get or where rates are going to peak out, and you know we're we're back up, right? So it, it looked like in between sort of Oct- October November is when it peaked, and it's been sort of trending down, but it, it bounced, it went ahead and bounced right back up uh, to I think I think a new high of five point. But but Mike, the the pivot, <laughs> the pivot, yeah. yeah, come on, there's a pivot, the yeah. Fed pivoted. Wait, wait, it, it doesn't look like a pivot to me. That looks like new all-time highs in the terminal rate. And here's the thing. Not only did he not pivot, he kind of doubled down on we're not done and we're going to keep, you know, turning up the gas. Now, here's the other thing. And this is where, you know, Mike uh, told me something that I, I kind of knew, but I forgot. Um, and I, and uh, this is Mike Green. Mike Green. Mike Green. Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody's saying, well, yeah, but financial conditions are super loose. So, yeah, the Fed is still raising rates and, yeah, they're still doing QT. But the financial conditions, Goldman Sachs, you know, financial conditions are, are really loose. And that's why we're having this rally. I said, 85% of that indicator is stock prices and, um, Oh, shoot, I can't remember the second thing. But he said, all that's measuring is the fact that the stock market went up 
because, and here's what really happened. China put $3 trillion of liquidity into their system. Right. Just like they saved the world in 2016 when they printed $4 trillion. Mm-hmm. So this has nothing to do with the Fed beating inflation. This has nothing to do with the meme stalker saving the world. This is simply that that indicator is bad. That financial conditions indicator, it's just double counting stocks. And it's as bad, and this is again a Mike Green story that he tells, that when Volcker was raising rates and broke the back of inflation, the only reason he did it is because his data was bad. The inflation number back then included both mortgage rates and housing prices. And so it was getting a double counting because yes, housing prices were sticky down, but the interest rate was going up. And so the CPI number kept going up and he had to keep raising. And so then he overraised, and then what happened? Bam, big recession. Mm, yeah. So but but Mark, who who peeks inside the index anymore? It's such an old fashioned way of thinking. Why would you want to know what's actually going I, I, you on? Know, look, just trust what the government tells us. That that's what we should all do. We should just trust everything they say, and we shouldn't ask questions. And, uh, you know, look, I I still I still come back to whenever I get on one of these rants, people say, oh, you hate it so much. Why don't you leave? Why don't you move? I'm like, look, I don't hate it. I don't hate America. I love this place. I hate some of the stuff that's going on, and I don't like selective enforcement, and I don't like changing rules after you tell people that if they play by these rules, they're okay. There are lots of things I don't, I don't appreciate. I don't like changing the definition of something to make it look good. So it works for your political party. You know, that's silly. Um, But generally speaking, you know, life is, life is pretty good here, but it doesn't mean that people aren't making mistakes and it doesn't mean those mistakes have real impact on real people. And that's what bothers me. Yeah. Is we've got this this set of of political agendas that are driving a bunch of decisions that I don't really understand how they fit with the mandate. Right? If your mandate is to protect small investors, why would you take away tools that help them earn income on their assets? Right? They own these assets. They're able to lend them and earn interest on them. That is part and parcel of a good functioning capitalist system. Okay, so that, that doesn't make sense to me. And you know, why would you make it harder for the average person to, uh, you know, earn a return on their uh, savings by destroying the value of the largest component, you know, for the average fixed income person, it's bonds and bonds just got slammed last year. People lost 25% of their, their worth. Now you'd argue, oh, but we're going to pay them more in the future. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. That, that's fine. Um, but here's, here's my, the last, the last thing I, I, I leave people to, to ponder on for the week until we talk again. At the current terminal rate, the, the rate that you just showed, at the rate of rollover of the debt, right? How much of the debt rolls over this year and next year? 
we're going to get to the point, I think it's in three years, I think that's the right number, um, where the interest consumes all of the spending. Yeah. And that can't work, right? So that isn't going to happen. And so one of two things has to happen. Either they just obliterate the spending, you know, the, the debt ceiling, and they just issue tons and tons more debt and spend massive deficits. And this is, again, this one where Mike Green and I really disagree. He's an MMT proponent. I think MMT is witchcraft, voodoo, craziness. And the one thing he said that I, I kind of, I hate to actually admit that I kind of agreed with it. He said, look, there is no difference technically between 120% debt to GDP and 140% debt to GDP. Right? Now, all the, the books of, of, historic, of history would have said, once you're at 100, you're defaulted, you're dead. You know, Japan's at 226. They're not dead. So, okay, 120, 140, not that different. But he said that 20% difference, if that money was invested in innovation, education, industry – that would be a net positive, and then we could pay back the debt. Like, ah, oh, that almost makes sense. That actually almost makes sense. Okay. But when the money is printed and spent and spent on ridiculous stuff like sending to Ukraine, that doesn't help us. So that's my problem. Well, here's the, I think that's the age old question of, you know, first, there are kind of some, some different arguments that get conflated here. A lot of people argue about that there was uh, originally this, there was 80%, right? There was, a, there, was a, there was a book written, there was a study done, there was a general consensus yep. agreement that, you know, a certain percent of debt to GDP is actually positive. This is the old Alexander Hamilton, you know, as some amount of debt yep. is actually good and healthy. That was a radical idea at the time. But there's there's like a parabola, just like everything else. And after a certain point, it becomes unproductive. And people like really argue about where, who, like, okay, I don't know either. Is it 80%? Is it 100%? Is it 120, 140? Just, let's just like logic it out and take an extreme. 10 times debt to GDP. I think we could all just sit here and say, yeah, that like doesn't really make a lot of sense. Doesn't and then really it, work. And then it's also, you know, what is the asset that you're getting, you know, in exchange for the liability right. on the other side? And that that I think is... And I've heard some people argue this. Well, the debt to GDP is a red herring. It doesn't matter because, you know, really it's what we're getting in return for that. And it's like, well, what are we getting in return for that? What? I I don't know. I, you know, I if I was a one-issue voter, I'd be an education maxi. It's a value that my parents just drilled 100%. into me. They sacrificed for my education. And I it like never pops up. I've never even seen it really crop up in a political debate, except for this nut stuff going on in Florida. Like that, I, I personally just wish we invested in the youth of the youth of the country, right? And like armed them. That's Shocking. the problem in the United States. Shocking. Just, you know, everyone sits here and it's like, why aren't we? What is going on in the US? Why aren't people agreeing? Look at who has the money. And who doesn't have, and I know I'm saying this as a young person, so, you know, take that with a big grain of salt, but like invest in the youth, man. It's a, you know, millennia old formula that has worked pretty well for humanity for a very long time. Okay, and, no, and, it's, and it's incontrovertible. Look, I've, I've told the story, I think I've even told it on the show, but look, the number one indicator of whether you'll go to prison 
is your score on the second grade reading test. That is really? the number one indicator Ugh, of that's scary. if you'll go that's, to prison. Because what happens is if you score below a certain level, you'll fall behind, you'll be ostracized, you drop out, you go to prison. And they actually build prisons in this country based on the scores of the second grade reading test, county by county. That's how they build prisons. <laughs> oh, no. Mark, and this I is a hundred percent preventable. We can teach children to read. We have perfect technology to teach children to read. But what is the first thing that gets cut every time there's a budget debate? Head start. Kindergarten, pre-kindergarten reading. It, 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 look, it's, it's why it's my thing. You know, when I set up Morgan Creek, I set up Morgan Creek Foundation, 10% of our profits go, and it all goes to early childhood education. That is my thing. And it's because I went to a youth prison uh, on a field trip, right, years ago, and the warden told me these facts. She says, this is why people go to prison. It's not poverty. It's not one child home, not one parent families. It's the score on the secondary reading test. And you can, you, can you can extrapolate that to other things. Like, why does China graduate 4.5 million STEM mm. engineers every year? And we graduate 500,000. I'm not saying getting a philosophy major is bad. I, I think philosophy is actually really good. I'm not saying, you know, history is one of the most important major. major. Yeah. Jason yeah. was a Look, history major. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not saying those are bad, but we need to educate our youth in lots of things, reading, writing, arithmetic. Right. So I'm, I'm with you. If, if we took that, if we're up to me, I would take all of the money in the social security trust fund, all of it. And I would create a venture capital fund, just like Tomasic and government of Singapore did. And I would invest that capital in businesses, education, you know, infrastructure, commerce, technology, and the government would own things. Imagine, imagine this, imagine the government owning 20% of everything, like being a minority shareholder in startup businesses. Hmm. How wouldn't that align them to then want them to succeed? Imagine if they owned 20% of Coinbase. And I'm not saying they should own 20%, that's not the magic number, but imagine if they owned a piece of that. Then they would be incented to make it work. It's what they did with GM, right? When they were about to go out of business. Yeah, they actually funny, owned yeah. a piece. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ownership aligns interests in a way that taxation does not. Yeah, I agree. Just a thought. Uh Although I, I, I'm not sure I would love having the government on uh, on my cap table. That would be uh, that would be uh, a. No, be... I'm talking minority minority interest, no voting, no control, just yeah. capital, just capital that aligned their interest. Yeah. So they would cheer for instead of against. Yeah, I agree with that. It's just a thought. Mark, this has been a super fun one, my friend. Uh, I will see you here. Best All hour right. of my week. Same time next week. All right. Sounds good.